The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 1st, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the latest NFL hiring cycle, where one black coach got hired to run a team and a whole lot more did not. We'll also look at the upside down world of sports in Australia where athletes lock down for weeks and play in front of maskless crowds. And finally, we'll ponder the most important question of this or any age. Will Kurt Schilling break the Baseball Hall of Fame? I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn, season four on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book Word Freak and also the book A Few Seconds of Panic. Justin from Shoveling, I'm assuming. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. First day in, what was it, like 710 days that Washington has gotten more than half an inch of snow? Uh, that seems about right. I made a little snowman. Did you lose count after like 702? <laughs> Been Xing off the, the days on my snow calendar. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, Joel Anderson. What are your thoughts on snow, Joel? I'm glad that I live on the West Coast where it's not snowing, but I guess we'll have to trade that for wildfire season here pretty soon. Yeah, that seems like a bad trade. I personally hate snow. I just want that on the record. We're from warm climes, Joel. Yeah, I'm a tr- I'm a very much a tropical person. You are as well, Stefan. What's up? I, mean, I don't know what you all nope. can do. Nope. No, snow's great. Love the snow. Okay. All right. Love the cold. Really? You're welcome anytime to come uh, shovel the wintry mix in front of my house. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave the light on for you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In May, the NFL made a few more tweaks to its Rooney rule. That's the league policy requiring franchises to interview minority candidates for head coaching and senior football front office positions. Those changes were meant to expand opportunities for the candidates and reward the teams that did their best to develop and hire them. But the first hiring cycle since their implementation has been a mixed bag. The Texans filled the NFL's final opening with a black head coach, David Culley, And two weeks ago, the Jets hired Robert Saleh, who is believed to be the league's first Muslim head coach. Those two joined Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin, Miami's Brian Flores, and Washington's Ron Rivera as the league's only minority head coaches. And to be honest, those are pretty weak numbers in a league where about 70% of the players are Black and other minority groups. Josh, I bet that if we looked back at the archives, we'd find that Hang Up and Listen, like most other shows and podcasts that cover sports— has covered this ongoing failure every single hiring cycle, every single offseason. There's obviously nothing new about the NFL's failure to hire or develop minority coaches. But in a year where four of the six coordinators for the two Super Bowl teams are black, including now perennial candidate Eric Bieniemy, did this go-round feel particularly bad? I think it did because, and it's not like there was a lack of awareness at any time in recent, you know, in modern history that the NFL is lacking in minority coaches. But given the tweaks to the Rooney rule, given all of the conversation that we're having in sports and elsewhere about race and equality, the fact that 
the hires that were made this offseason were made does feel like kind of a crisis. Like if there is this level of knowledge and awareness and even kind of inducement and bribery <laughs> to get NFL teams to change their ways, and, and this is the result, then that seems like, okay, what else can be done? Like there's nothing that anyone from outside can do to change the face of ownership in the NFL. There are no black owners in the league and only two um, people of color that have major ownership stakes. And that to me feels like a fundamental thing that's driving hiring here. But Stefan, I mean, there, there are ways in which hiring has changed. It's not like things are static. There were three black general managers that were hired this offseason, which is a sign of progress, even if the total number is now just five, like three you know, out of seven is like a good proportion. And, you know, Joel, you mentioned the number of black coordinators in the Super Bowl. That's a really good thing. And those coaches can't be interviewed for these jobs because those interviews have to wait until after team seasons are over. So it could be an unfortunate instance where like all of these teams wanted to fill their jobs and they didn't want to sit around for these like highly successful black coordinators to finish their seasons. So, I mean, Stefan, it's possible to create a narrative of progress here rather than one of like total abject failure, but it's also hard not to look at the top line and see that as extremely disappointing. Yeah, I think you're being generous. I mean, I think it is it is a sign of progress that more general managers have been hired, but these are distinct jobs. Uh, the general managers in here in Washington, for instance, is a former player, but who then went on to some success and accomplishment in the business world, and then return to the NFL in an executive suite. So that's sort of, there's sort of two different tracks. And the coaching track is significant because of the sheer volume of qualified candidates that exist. If you've spent any time around NFL coaching staffs, and I know you have certainly, Joel, and college staffs too, you know that there are plenty of assistants who are qualified to become head coaches. And for a lot of them, Nothing changes. I mean, there, when I was in Denver, the guy that was the assistant special teams coordinator, he's still, now he's a special teams coordinator in the NFL. And that was 14 years ago, coming up on 15 years ago. So there's very often very little change, and it does come back to ownership. And I think we should talk about why this perpetuates. And this is not unique to football, certainly. But what is unique to football is that there doesn't seem a corporate will to change the climate and the environment in which these hirings occur. Right. And I think a lot of people have made this point before, but the Rooney rule wasn't some sort of uh, function of altruism. It was a function of the fact that the NFL was potentially going to get sued by Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary, um, you know, right. two civil rights attorneys. And so they did this under duress. And ever since then, since the implementation of the rule in 2003, pretty much all their moves gives you the, would give you the indication that this is something that they did not want to do and they have to be forced to do. And I mean, another sign of that is that if they were just going to adhere to the spirit of the rule, they wouldn't have had to sweeten the pot a few months ago. They'd be like, hey, we might improve your draft positioning. We might do these things for you if you consider you know, more black candidates for these positions. So it's something that they don't want to do. And I think you know, you're right, Stefan. You made the point about 
you know, the owner class, right? Like the, the owners are the people that are, they're not the face of this, but they're the spirit behind this. You know, Roger Goodell has to get out in front of people and, and talk about the Rooney Rule. The head coaches have to get out and talk about this sort of stuff. But we never hear from the owners. And the owners are the people, the only people that can make this change. And I guess what I would say about that is that these owners, you know, most of them, their primary business is not in football. They get their money from some other way. They work in some sort of the industry and then they make enough money and they can buy a football team. Right. But the thing about these owners is that they come from private industry, which is notorious for not hiring black people and other people of color or people from marginalized communities to do jobs, you know, tech, construction, anything, anything, real estate, anything that you can think of. Black people in this country are pretty much underrepresented in that field. And so, of course, it would carry over to football. And I just don't know. I mean, like I said, we talk about this every year. This is a topic that comes up every year, and we're always at the same place. And nothing can change as long as the owners have no incentive to change. You know, like, unless you make them, they're not going to do it. But I guess at a certain point, it's like, how can you make them? Like, what instrument, what rule, what policy can you do to make them accountable for these these terrible numbers? So in those industries that you mentioned, private industries and others, Joel, the excuse is often that it's a pipeline issue that like, oh, we'd love to hire black people or people of color, but there just aren't enough candidates and we need to, you know, figure out how to fix that. The NFL doesn't have that excuse. (laughs) Right. Like, look at the field. Everybody's black. (laughs) Not literally (laughs) everybody, but like round up and you get it, you you get it to everybody. And so there is an issue here of perception and conscious and unconscious bias. And Richard Johnson had a really good piece in Slate last week that framed this in a way I thought was really smart, which is that NFL head coaches now are allowed to be quote unquote unconventional. But the only way that NFL, you know, the people that are doing these hires think of somebody being unconventional is if they're white. It's like, oh, you know, Cliff Kingsbury wasn't a successful college coach, but like I can see him being great in the NFL because he's like handsome and has a a good uh, passing game. Or like Joe Judge, he was a special teams coach, but like I guess John Harbaugh was a special teams coach and Mm -hmm. he was good. Or, you know, Arthur Smith, Kevin Stefanski, Matt Rule. You know, Zach Taylor, there are people whose names I don't even know who are like, you know, young white head coaches in the NFL. And a lot of it is like, oh, Sean McVay was successful. And so we're looking for the next Sean McVay. It's like, well, Sean McVay is is great. But, you know, when you have, you know, a Sean McVay, why is he the one that gets copied rather than Mike Tomlin, who was 34 when he got hired and became the youngest coach ever to win the Super Bowl? It's a you know, failure of imagination is too kind of a way to phrase it. But yeah, it's bias. It's bias. It's inherent bias. I mean, and and the difference, Joel, and I'll push back on on your analogy with the corporate world a little bit, is that corporations are under extreme duress to create programs to bring in lawyers who help them comply with, you know, with federal civil rights laws and to create programs that try to change the culture. And, you know, we've seen all of that. The NFL happens to be even more public than major corporations in America in a lot of ways. And despite everything that's been happening this year in particular, you don't see that movement. You don't see that awareness that, 
oh, we need to do this. We need to be better at looking for the black head coach who's probably as talented or gifted or innovative as the white coach. But what do you mean you don't see the awareness? They created this whole system of like giving teams draft picks if, you know, black or minority coaches or general managers get hired. It's the follow through, the incentive to do it. And the one thing that I've read in recent days that feels a little different is is drawing the comparison between what happened, say, in the NBA last fall, where the players got together and exerted their influence. I think it's Bill Roden wrote a piece in The Undefeated that talked about the imperatives to take the next step, that like action is now required. And whether that action comes from the Players Association, which is run by a Black executive, Demora Smith, or whether it comes from players or whether it comes from corporations, that it's almost to the point where something has to force ownership to change. And that pressure, again, probably lies in the players. They do have power. And you could say, well, they didn't have enough power to save Colin Kaepernick. Why would they have power to influence who old white owners hire as head coaches? But we won't know until it happens. You know, I I guess, I mean, I'm always reluctant to put more of the burden on... On the play. It's not fair. Yeah, right. And I'm less certain, especially now, like given what we've seen over the last few years, the way that you know, the owners have sort of beaten back player power. I mean, the the players got washed in CBA negotiations just a year ago, right? So like even within arguing for on behalf of their own careers and, you know, their own professional standards, like they're not able to really advocate for themselves as well as you would like. And so I I just don't know, you know, that they'd be able to do much for coaches. But I, I guess the one thing for me, you're kind of circling back on this, is that, you know, we talked about Coaches get hired from all these sorts of different things. There's all sorts of different ways of hiring coaches and looking at coaching candidates or whatever. But for me, fundamentally, what it comes back to is Black people in general and Black players specifically never get labeled geniuses. Now, I I would like for you all to think Mm -hmm. back over the course of your life as a sports fan or whatever. How often is it that Black players get credited for their mind? Or their IQ, right? That says, oh, it always comes back to some sort of like, you know, physical gift or some sort of like instinct, but it's never about genius. I've never heard of a black coach described in the way that like Sean McVay is described or Andy Reid is described or Bill Belichick is described. And it could be because that's just the dearth of candidates or whatever, but every year there's a new crop of genius white guys that get these opportunities. You never hear it with black players. But that's because it never happens with black people, you know? And so that's what so when you when you said you push back on the private industry thing, I think this is just sort of a, a problem that, you know, is just a function of the world we live in. You know, I don't I very rarely hear about genius black writers. I very rarely hear about genius black podcasters. I very rarely hear about genius black accountants, whatever. You know, it's just this is the world in which we live and it's reflected in football. And so I think the NFL should change and needs to change. And it would be great if somebody could oppress them in some sort of way to adhere to the spirit of the Rooney rule. But like, this is a world problem. This is an American problem. It's not limited to the NFL. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And that is what makes this feel so intractable. And yet the answer can't just be, well, this is going to be how it is. And there are people within the league who are trying 
to change this. Like mm-hmm. the NFL is not a, a monolith. And there are, you know, whether it's Bruce Arians, white coach in Tampa, who's got so many great black coaches on his staff. And hired a woman recently. Mm-hmm. Dan Campbell, the new Lions coach who we made fun of last week, and damn, he deserved to be made fun of, <laughs> hired black offensive and defensive coordinators. You do have these additional black GMs, which I do think matters. And so, you know, the other thing that Richard Johnson did in his piece that I thought was really valuable is enumerating, he listed a set of Black coaches who are kind of of the same ilk of the like young, unknown white coaches who are getting head coaching interviews and often getting head coaching jobs. Because the names that we often hear of these Black candidates are people like Eric Bieniemy or you know, Todd Bowles. I mean, I could name a bunch of them, Marvin Lewis. Let me interrupt. I mean, David Culley, who was hired by the Houston Texans, he's 65. And he was the black head coach hired in this cycle. He's been coaching for almost 40 years. And now he's getting a chance with a team that was 4-12, and that has a quarterback that is miserable and wants to be traded and is being set up for failure. And so the black coaches who are getting these, these interviews and opportunities are ones, maybe they haven't been around as long as Cully, most of them, but we've heard of all of them because they've, you know, been the only names that are circulating. But, um, you know, what Richard Johnson did is he named Deuce Staley, Aaron Glenn, Jeff Nixon, D'Amico Rines, Patrick Graham. Like, these are the guys who would be head coaches, like people who have never gotten interviews who are like young mm-hmm. up-and-comers. These are like the Joe Judges, Matt Rules, Clef- Cliff Kingsbury, Kevin Stefanski's like this is the like category of coach that never gets a chance. The ones right. that like maybe they haven't paid their dues, but they're like young and smart and hungry, and they could maybe lead a team. But nobody in this group, except maybe Mike Tomlin and except maybe Raheem Morris, were were ever like in this kind of group and given that kind of chance. And that's why I very rarely like focus on individual candidates like Eric Bieniemy. Right? Like I have no idea if Eric Bieniemy is a good candidate, would make a good coach. I don't know a lot about Dan Campbell, like whether or not he's a good candidate will make a good coach. Like, but the thing is, is that you have to argue on behalf of, um, you know, broader patterns within the league and whether or not everybody is getting a shot. And so that's why, so like, yeah, when, what Richard did there by naming all these guys, like that's a, that's a way to get sort of move, maybe move the narrative, put a few mm-hmm. more names out there so that we're not always leaning on, you know, Jim Caldwell, you know, Leslie Frazier, you know, guys who've gotten chances and maybe, you know, people will start to sort of shift that window and look at like the younger guy and say, Hey, maybe he might do something. And, and the other piece of that as well is that maybe people need to pitch this as like a competitive advantage because you'd think that if you're the NFL, like you want to event, and it's, it's kind of what we talked about with Major League Baseball when they named their first female general manager earlier this year. It's like, you have no idea the talent or the pool of talent that you're overlooking when you just cycle through this same sort of, you know, hiring cycle, when you, you know, hire the guy that's standing next to Bill Belichick or a guy who had coffee with Sean McVay once, right? Like, you just, you have no idea if, if like, maybe we should think about hiring a running backs coach, you know? Or maybe the wide receiver path, the wide receiver coach path Uh, And to to the head coach, maybe we should consider that now because people really don't. If we know anything about the NFL, none of these teams know how to hire a coach within a couple of years, three years. Everybody that's hired now 
uh, you know, with the maybe exception of one candidate, will probably be fired. And so it just seems like it would compel them, like if they want to win, if they want to maximize the potential of their players and their franchise and everything, that they think a little bit more outside of the box because it just seems like the smart thing to do. Except that the owner looks at candidates and looks in a mirror. You know, who am I comfortable talking with? Who interviews well? It's the guy that sounds like me. I mean, and then you put him in front of a microphone, as we saw with Dan Campbell, or the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, hired Nick Sirianni, who gave a disastrous opening press conference. It's how ownership looks back. And that's why I go back to how do you pressure a team to look at candidates differently? Um, You know, Maybe the Washington football team is best positioned when Ron Rivera, who's an older dude, decides to move on. You know, they've got both a president and a general manager who are African-American. You know, maybe we should be giving them credit for, for that and the potential for changing the pattern of hiring among teams. But, but something does need to change. And I don't want to put the pressure, like you said, Joel, on the players, but it does require some sort of disruptive action. And Rod Graves, the head of the uh, the Fritz Pollard Coalition, who lobbies to sort of monitor the Rooney Rule and works with the league, said that this past week, that you know, th- this is we're at the point now where just saying it's a problem or incentivizing ownership to do something different, to, you know, to be rewarded for doing the right thing isn't enough. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're up to 26 million COVID cases and 441,000 deaths here in the United States. Last week, the NBA writer Sekou Smith died of COVID complications at age 48. Baseball reporter Mel Antonin died of an autoimmune disease and COVID at the age of 64. The University of Michigan Athletic Department is in the middle of a two-week shutdown because of an outbreak of the B117 COVID variant. The Washington Wizards only recently resumed playing after six of their players tested positive. Two weeks ago, the Vanderbilt women's basketball team followed the Duke women in choosing to end their season early. And in Australia, where the seven-day average for new COVID cases is six, that is the single-digit number six, as in Bill Russell, Jay Cutler, and Geese Alaying. <laughs> they are playing tennis matches in front of maskless crowds of 4,000. Stefan, this is like a dispatch from an alternate universe and not just because of those maskless crowds. Hundreds of the world's best tennis players, among them Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, Novak Djokovic, were quarantined for 14 days in hotels upon arrival for the Australian Open. 72 players total were not allowed to leave their rooms at all for any reason for those 14 days. That included Victoria Azarenka, Belinda Bencic, because people on their flights to Australia had tested positive for COVID. It is perhaps not wise to have them play a major championship after being put in confinement for that long, but that kind of confinement is what is called for if you want to prevent an outbreak, and that is what Australia is doing. 
Yes, but I do need to say that you didn't mention that the U.S. men's handball team had to drop out of the World Championships in Egypt two days before the tournament was supposed to start because 10 players, the head coach, and seven other staff members tested positive. Um, We'll have a little more on the handball worlds later. But back to Australia, there was some griping by players, Josh, especially the 72 that you mentioned who uh, were locked in their rooms for two weeks because someone on the flight tested positive, and there was concern that they wouldn't be physically fit to play. But that was all overridden by the important point. The country was not going to fuck up its success for a tennis tournament. Melbourne, a city of 5 million people, where the Australian Open will start later this month, had gone has gone like 25 or 26 now straight days without a new locally acquired positive case. And they've been able to do that because Melbourne's province, Victoria, had a total lockdown for 111 days. Total lockdown. People followed rules. They learned from mistakes, including a disastrous hotel quarantine system that led to hundreds of deaths last year. And now they get to have nice things like attending tennis matches. Australia obviously is a saner country than ours, and it decided that sports aren't worth jeopardizing public health. Yeah, I mean, when I read and see what the players are going through in Australia, it has me wondering, as I have so often over the last, you know, 10 months or so, is it really worth it? And by which I mean, I get the sports need to continue to maintain, you know, the financial health of these individual organizations and, you know, uh, industries and all that other stuff. And like the athletes need need the money and all the other stuff that comes with playing too. But in terms of the spirit of competition and staging the best possible games and competitions, this doesn't seem conducive to that, right? I mean, having players trapped in their room and feeding them all, like it just doesn't, if I were preparing for an event of the caliber of the Australian Open, it seems like I would not be anywhere near my best if I had been trapped in my room and had a recumbent bike or whatever is my only means of cardio. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that hitting a tennis ball off of a plate glass window isn't good preparation for the Australian Open? I'm no tennis fan, but it seems like that probably is not, you know, the best way to approximate uh, tennis goes. So, yeah, I just, I don't, I mean, I understand that the, again, I understand that the Australian Open needs to happen for whatever number of reasons, right? Um, But in terms of playing the games, and especially under these circumstances, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Or, But, you know, what do I know? Heather Watson, British player, ran a 5K in her room by just running back and forth. (laughs) Um, So this is what (laughs) players are doing there. Yeah, I mean, Joel, I, I think another way to kind of think about this is, there are really three paths forward and have been since, you know, Rudy Gobert tested positive and the NBA locked down a little less than a year ago now. There is no sports. There is let's do kind of crazy quarantining of the athletes to allow sports to happen, or let's do something in the middle. And the U.S. has picked, let's do something in the middle, mostly. And we see how well, you know, that's gone for everyone. You know, there was a period in which no sports was the prevailing, you know, option. And the reason that that changed, and you don't really see, you know, leagues or or events, you know, there, there are a few small exceptions, but you don't see like the massive kind of cancellations that we saw last year. The reason that's happened has nothing to do with public health or safety or what's going on in the world. It has, it's exactly what Joel said. It has to do with, you know, I, I think probably 90 5% of it is, you know, related to revenue. Some 5% of it was just like, 
you know what? I'm, I'm sick of this. We just got to keep, you know, <laughs> the, the same attitude, Stefan, that's like, you know, we can't shut ourselves in our houses forever. We got to like move on with our lives. Like that, I think, is sort of prevailed to some extent in sports in America, along with everything else. Yeah. Um, so we skip the part of the, you know, the 111 day Victoria lockdown, which would have gotten us to a better place now. But in spite of that, Joel, we're patting ourselves on the back over here. Hey, we got through the NFL season and no games were canceled. Hey, we had a World Series. We won. We had a winner. I was going to say that. That's amazing because we've been self-congratulatory about like just getting through this shit. Right. right? Hey, nobody died. You know, Varys Verluga, who I like a lot, the Washington Post sports columnist, has a, a, a piece in Monday's paper that talks to people about, you know, we made it through, we've made it this far, and no one with, affiliated with a major American sport, the operation of it, has died. I mean, <laughs> what about like the blast zone of, of sports? I mean, we've cited it before, but that study that showed that college towns had rates of COVID positivity mm-hmm. and deaths, places where sports were back in the fall, was much higher than comparable places that, that didn't. Yeah. So I guess if you don't consider that, then sure, the numbers look fine. If you, if right. you don't consider a guy like Keontae Johnson, uh, the Florida basketball player who was hospitalized and, you know, in a briefly in a medically induced coma, if you don't, you know, bring up Raquel Armstead, you know, the, the Jacksonville Jaguars running back who was hospitalized mm-hmm. twice as a result. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing still is— Still alive, Joel, still yeah, alive. If, if you're insisting upon playing, then of course you're going to finish. If you're like, you're like, well, I don't give a damn how many people get sick or however, you know, as long as nobody dies, if you're insistent upon playing, of course you can finish. And I guess you can take some sort of uh, celebratory lap in that, but it just doesn't seem like if the goal is to minimize exposure and reduce the risk as much as possible, every league has failed with that since the NBA tried the bubble— and yeah, I mean, the bubble was great for the most part. Like the competition itself was amazing. The basketball was really good. The WNBA and NHL had bubbles too. So. Yeah, they had bubbles too. Yeah, don't let me not forget that. Thank you. And, and the soccer leagues. And soccer leagues. I, well, I, I guess I, have, I should say, in terms of the competition that I watched, uh, you know, every day, time after time, I was like, I can attest to the fact that the NBA's basketball was good. I cannot quite testify about the soccer leagues or whatever and how they did. So I, I assume they played great ball. So. Congratulations to them. But, uh, but, 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 I mean, the thing is that you balance that against the toll that it took on the players to do that. And of course they didn't want to do that again. Right. And so I guess like getting anybody to do a bubble again at this point is probably not going to happen, but that's where you're going to see these half measures the rest of the way. And, you know, I mean, yeah, nobody's died yet. I mean, that's, that's something we could take solace in, but like, that's just, just like what we said yet. Sekou Smith is 48 years old, man. He's not an, he was not an old person. And I, I'm not going to pretend that like I knew Sekou well, but I knew him a little bit. And, you know, that's, that should be scary to people. That, you know, somebody 48 years old who, as far as I know, didn't have like some sort of lingering illness or whatever, to die under these circumstances. I mean, you would think that along the road there would be all these places where people are like, man, this seems really dangerous. We should be more cautious about this. And it just hasn't happened yet. Well, there are no great answers and solutions here because it's a broken country and has been a broken country. Like nothing is working. Like see the debates about, you know, virtual school versus sending kids into classrooms. Like both solutions are bad and imperfect and they're good arguments 
on both sides that the other side is totally wrong. And so there's just no going to be no winning here. Um, and even in Australia, Stefan, I mean, I think what that demonstrates, I guess if if we're talking about domestic sports in Australia, when you're not like flying Serena and everybody else into the country, then it would probably be a different conversation. I would imagine like domestic basketball and Aussie rules football are probably having a, an easier and more more normal time than like the entire international tennis world trying to uproot itself and live in Australia now. Like that's just going to have a bunch of problems associated with it. And like the thing I'm that really scares me it's like we have conversations in like quote unquote normal years about how hellaciously hot it is during the Australian Open and how it's like inhumane to have them play even when they're training normally. And so it could be a bloodbath out there. But I guess we'll I guess we'll see in the next couple of weeks. Can I ask you a question? I, I know Djokovic is known to be a clown at this point. You know that he's just been you know sort of uh, anti. His demands were uh, misunderstood, Joel. He was just trying to advocate for those who did not have. Uh, a voice of their own. Well, I'm going to say something that probably is going to align me with a clown, but I actually, you know, <laughs> given given what I read, like maybe I didn't read it all, but his, quote, demands didn't actually sound like, I mean, if you're going to do this with elite athletes, like it seems like there should be some accommodations made for their workout. You know, uh, what, what did he what did he ask for? He asked it was for like, private houses, more, more private houses for players with courts. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I'm sure those are growing on trees in Australia. But wasn't wasn't the main point, Josh, Food that too? Djokovic was arguing on behalf of the 72 who were hotel quarantined because other people on their flights had tested positive, which was different from the situation that he and Serena and some other players were in. They were in a different city and they didn't have that complicating factor. So they didn't face as... Uh, rigorous a 14-day quarantine as the ones in the hotel rooms did, right? I mean, he was partly arguing on their behalf, but he was also asking for, quote-unquote, decent food for everyone. (laughs) So uh, I I think, again, it's it's like they shouldn't be conducting a Grand Slam tournament under these conditions. And the stuff that Djokovic is asking for is probably below the level of what he would typically get on tour. And yet, there's both the perception and the reality of athletes shouldn't be, you know, cutting the line or getting things that, you know, ordinary citizens aren't getting. Like, let's treat them the same. I think that sends a really powerful and important message, one that we've never sent right here in, in this country. And so, again, it's it's like the options are have the tournament the way they normally would, and it would like be a super spreader event. Don't have the tournament, and you have a huge revenue hit for everyone involved. Or have the tournament probably safely from a COVID perspective and have the players be like super uncomfortable and annoyed and like maybe not in peak physical health. I guess if you're choosing out of those three, the third is is maybe the best option. Yeah. I mean, because the third also goes with the head of the government in the state of Victoria saying there's no special treatment here because the virus doesn't treat you specially, so neither do we. So if you want to play, these are the rules. If this is this difficult, right, and we saw uh, in the news earlier this week that they're still trying to determine whether or not they're going to have the summer games uh, in Japan this summer, 
Doesn't that make you wonder how it's even possible that they'll be able to pull this off in Japan? Like, I mean, I, it's it's still an open question. Japan says that they haven't made any decisions. It's still an opportunity. But I just, you read about what's happening at the Australian Open, which is, you know, a very small scale international event, many fewer athletes, and they're having these difficulties. It doesn't seem possible that they could try to pull this off in Japan this summer, right? Yeah, I mean, we should have that conversation, I think, more fully in a couple of weeks. But I think that's one of the more fascinating topics for sports or anything else for this year, whether and how they're going to try to pull that off. Because the incentives to try to do it are going to be so insanely high for so many parties involved. And it seems like such a bad idea Mm -hmm. that there's going to be, you know, that's a recipe for potential (laughs) disaster and conflict, but it's a really interesting situation. Yeah. The scale is just so much different from the Australian open. Uh, I think like 1200 people were coming from out of the country for the tennis tournament. The Olympics is tens of thousands of people. Um, You're not getting tens of thousands of fans going to Melbourne to watch the Aussie Open, but with the Olympics you are. So it's it, it's the scale of the problem is just so much greater. And the other difference is that, and we can, we'll get into this when we talk about this more thoroughly, but Australia is down to, you know, a stand usual number of cases in the country and Tokyo, Osaka, other big areas in Japan are under a state of emergency. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about quarterback roulette in the NFL. It started with Matthew Stafford moving to the Rams and Jared Goff swapping with him, going to the Lions. So who is going where next? To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's $35 for the first year. You can sign up at Slate.com slash plus. In November 2016, Kurt Schilling tweeted out a photo of that t-shirt with the slogan, Rope, Tree, Journalist, Some Assembly Required, and commented, okay, so much awesome here. Last week, for the ninth straight year, Schilling was denied entrance into baseball's Hall of Fame. Coincidence? Probably not. Journalists do not think that t-shirt has any awesome, and journalists vote on who gets enshrined in the Hall of Fame. On the other hand, Schilling has been spewing extremist right-wing nonsense for years, including last month when he tweeted support for the U.S. Capitol terrorists, and he came closer than ever this year to making it into the hall. After falling short, Schilling threw an attention-seeking tantrum and asked the hall to leave him off the ballot for what would be his 10th and final year of eligibility in the vote by writers. Josh, I know that you don't care much for Hall of Fame debates, But Schilling's candidacy, even more than those of steroid-era stars Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, who also didn't get in this year, no one got in this year, could be, you know, Schilling could be one the one that breaks the Hall of Fame, and that feels a little bit interesting to me. When we talk about Hall of Fame debates of this ilk, the thing that comes to mind for me, and it's not funny, so I apologize for laughing, is do you guys remember when Peter King defended Darren Sharper's candidacy? 
yeah, in 2015. <laughs> yeah. So Darren Sharper was at that point accused of a whole lot of rapes, um, just a horrifying number, was convicted um, and is now in prison for a long time. Peter King wrote in a series of tweets that Hall of Fame voters for the NFL are asked to consider only on-field factors for ex-players. This is what I do. He's a candidate. We would be shirking our duties if we did not consider him. What has happened since should not be factored in. He concluded by saying, if I said I will not consider Sharper for induction because he has been accused of multiple rapes, I would resign from the committee. So Drew McGarry said on in Deadspin at the time, just a very strange hill <laughs> to want to die on. And that's kind of what it, Sharper Hill. <laughs> I mean, wow. It's like I'm gonna stand on this principle that if someone is accused of and later, you know, convicted of multiple rapes, then we must consider him for the Hall of Fame and otherwise we would be shirking uh, our duties. I kind of feel this way about Kurt Schilling. You can look at the rules. You can look at the different clauses that are involved with, uh, you know, the the Baseball Hall of Fame has like, you should consider character. Character clause. And all that stuff. Like, ultimately, gentlemen, just do whatever the hell you want to do. Like, it, and I can understand yeah. if you don't want to vote for Kurt Schilling because he is among the worst, the worst of us, <laughs> then you shouldn't really, I don't feel like that requires an enormous amount of explanation. But like you see people, like people I really respect, like, you know, whether it's like Joe Poznanski or C. Trent Rosecrans, or just like, they're so kind of tortured about it. And like these long explanations of like, I voted for him for so many years. And I decided this time, I think it was because of the the insurrection and showing support of it. And it's just like, even for all of the horrible and indefensible things he said and done, it's just like, maybe that felt like the last straw. But it's, I, I feel like it's a little bit over-explaining. Just like, don't vote for the guy if yeah. you don't want to vote for the guy. Yeah. I mean, that that that's what I think, Joel. That's my, that's my long-winded and tortured explanation of why I don't feel like <laughs> the need to explain why we shouldn't vote for Kurt Schilling. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like that was uh, overly long, uh, long-winded. I mean, I think that's, and I think that's pretty much right. Like, I think that if you know what it is, I think when people get a Hall of Fame vote, and maybe I'm saying this as a person who has not had a Hall of Fame vote and probably will never get one. We got to fix that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind voting for the College Football Hall of Fame or something. Maybe you know, we'll see. But I think that like when people get a Hall of Fame vote. It feels prestigious, and therefore you feel like you need to like have these very long and tortured debates and discourse about what I did with my ballot, and this is why I did this. And it's it, a you know, sacred it, responsibility. Yeah, it feels so. Yeah, but I'm just like, come on, dude. I mean, it's in a museum that you know, you know, not how many people are still going to Cooperstown, New York, right now. You know, what I mean, like it just it it just feels a little bit like. Just well, it's a collective. Down. It's a collective settle decision, down. Joel, by all of us to take it seriously. Right. It's like the Hall of Fame. I, I guess there is a way in which it's like fundamentally like important, quote unquote, important if you care about this sort of stuff. But there is just again this like decision that everyone in sports, writers, fans, whatever, make to decide like this is a big deal. We have to take it seriously, and that's like not the worst thing in the world. I can understand. I can understand that. But it can it can be taken too far. Well, yeah, and I understand why it matters to the players, for instance. Like I know that like that it can be the crown 
you know, it can be the, the, the punctuation on a career, you know, and, and I, I understand that like, you know, and it can mean money and opportunity and all these other things that go on in the future. And like whether, you know, you sign cards. We all like awards. If you've ever gotten mm-hmm. an award, it's cool yeah. to get an award. Yeah. But all this other stuff, it just seems, it just seems a little, it seems out of step with the times. There's so many important things going on right now that like worrying about whether or not Kurt Schilling deserves induction into the Hall of Fame seems, doesn't seem to meet the moment. And I say that as somebody that like pushed for this argument because I thought it was like, I pushed for us to have this debate on the, on the uh, podcast. And I'm, now I'm like, ah. I understand this is not that big a deal, but I, I said that because Joel, Joel, I'm a person that believes to... he should be in the Hall of Fame. I would vote for him if I had a vote. That's what I'm saying, basically. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. I was gonna uh, try to force out of you. If yeah, you didn't, right, uh, right. Admit it yourself. Right. I, I, yes. In our prep for this segment, you said I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I probably yet, would vote for him. Right. We're seven minutes into this yeah. segment before before you admitted that. So, what's the argument for him being in the Hall of Fame, Joel? Um, I mean, I just you know. There's a lot of terrible people in the Baseball Hall of Fame, presumably. <laughs> and, you know, if I had to sort Not through... Not presumably. All, we, can, we can stipulate yeah, that. If I had to just sort through, like, who's too racist to be in the Hall of Fame, I'd probably be a very difficult task. So I'd just be like, well, I saw him pitch. He seemed like he was pretty good. Like, it doesn't seem like you could tell the story of baseball without talking about Kurt Schilling. And if I cared about baseball in that way and I went to the damn Hall of Fame... I would kind of expect him to be in there, but if he was not, it wouldn't kill me either. But like, just for myself, I'd be like, well, he was good enough. He meets the standard. He didn't kill anybody. He's just a bad person. But there are a lot of bad people. The difference between Kurt Schilling and, say, Barry Bonds is that a lot of people feel like Kurt Schilling isn't a lock Hall of Famer based right. on his career. Barry Bonds, you cannot make an argument that his performance doesn't merit being in the Hall of Fame. Same with Roger Clemens. So, again, going back to the, the hand-wringing and the moral responsibility that Hall of Fame voters put upon themselves, Kurt Schilling feels also like a stupid hill to die on. And the reason this is an issue is because Kurt Schilling is a troll, and he has made this an issue. This isn't who I am. It's the media, the media, the media. Look at Kurt Schilling's support for entry into the Hall of Fame. He was first on the ballot in 2013, and he got like 39%. And his numbers almost every year have increased to 71% in the most recent balloting. I mean, he went up from last year to this year. He went up 10 percentage points from 2019. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that every candidate who has made it into the Hall of Fame in the last decade who has gotten more votes than Kurt Schilling, is now in, right? So there's a logjam that was clear. There were a lot of players that were obvious Hall of Famers, and now there are fewer. But Kurt Schilling's whining belies the fact that a lot of people are still voting for the guy. And if he doesn't get in, well, tough shit. A lot of good baseball players don't get into this Hall of Fame. And if, you know, it was like 16, he needed 16 more votes to get in this year, well, don't fucking post you know, anti-trans memes. Don't say Hillary Clinton should be buried under a jail. Uh, Don't compare Muslims to Nazis. Don't pretend that you weren't fired from ESPN four years ago, five years ago, for speaking your mind or for being a conservative. You know, the list goes on with Kurt Schilling and a lot of the stuff that he has promoted and, and defended are appalling. And he is every time said, no, it's not me, it's the media. 
So look, you want to be in, you want to make to the Hall of Fame? Reggie Jackson said that you did this to yourself, dude. If you wanted to be in the Hall of Fame so badly, you shouldn't have been a dick. Those were not Reggie's words, but that's what <laughs> Reggie was saying. No, that's exactly the thing, Stefan, right? Like, like he's the one who's made this an issue, right? Like right. he could have shut he could have shut the hell up and been quiet and he probably would have gotten to the Hall of Fame. I mean, nobody is t- nobody has talked about Kurt Schilling taking the mound with that bloody sock anymore. Like he's and he's the reason for it. Catch we up. could we could we we could totally talk about. Oh, what, did, what, did, what is it? Was that a baseball thing that I missed there? What did you do, Stefan? Yeah, conspiracy what is it? theory. He, conspiracy he, he theory. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You don't think he was believing? Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but see, but, but like, wouldn't that People be a more saying. interesting conversation to have about Kurt Schilling that if he didn't make it about like all this other stupid shit that he's been talking about for the last decade or so, right? right. Like, we don't even talk about how he wasted $75 million of Rhode Island. Uh, taxpayer money on some stupid gaming company. You know what I mean? But like he said, all these other things that have come up along the way. And I mean, you know, unfortunately, people consider that when they look at their ballot. And that, that is all his fault. He could have shut the fuck up and maybe people would have voted him in, but that's just not what happened. He just can't, he couldn't control himself. I want to go back and quote Reggie Jackson directly. He said, mm-hmm. Freedom of speech got you freed out of the Hall of Fame. Freedom of speech <laughs> got your ass out of Cooperstown, bro. <laughs> That's really good, Reggie. I like that. That could have been our whole segment more uh, concisely. So you made a couple of really good points, Stefan. Number one, I, you know, in in my initial statement, I was kind of giving a lot of attention to folks like C. Trent Rosecrans and Joe Poznanski, who publicly said we supported him before. We're not supporting him now. But his support level of support went up. It actually went up. So that's, that's worth noting. And also... Um, you're very correct to point out that Schilling's Hall of Fame candidacy is, if not entirely, largely about narrative. It's about postseason success. It's about the bloody sock. It's about longevity, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he has like, you know, he he's not, he doesn't have the greatest resume of of anybody who's who's ever been like a starting pitcher in, in baseball to get in. Like, you need to like kind of get into the, history and really know about him and what he did. And then when, uh, you know, if that's the case and people are starting to look at you and like, and things that go beyond numbers, then, you know, the, the stuff, all that stuff is fair game. And the things that's, that's so, I, I don't find him to be a particularly interesting figure. I'm not like pr- interested in psychoanalyzing him, but the, the thing that's fascinating about him is that he got all of these awards for like good character mm-hmm. and like being, good with the media when he was a player and he did all this like charitable stuff around, you know, ALS and and other causes. And at the same time, he was, if not universally, like widely disliked by his teammates at the time. They thought he was an intention hog. They called him red light Kurt and all of this stuff. And so if you add all that together, there seems to be like an awareness of how to pitch yourself and sell yourself and like kind of play the game with the media and to like create a persona that like maybe behind the scenes people don't like you, but like publicly you're seen as this like great guy. And like at some point he either stopped caring about that and like stopped playing that game or he still like cared about it, but like he became so hateful that he like wasn't able to like turn the dials (laughs) appropriately he was radicalized but that arc is just really interesting to me because he is a guy i think who 
if he was like as big an asshole as like we know that he is, could have still made the could have easily still made the Hall of Fame if he had just you know, it's all about personal behavior and responsibility, Joel. We have a we have a culture of personal responsibility here in the Hall yes, of Fame. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just point right. out that when when Kurt Schilling in 2015 tweeted out some meme that compared radical Muslims to Nazis or Muslims to Nazis. You know what he was he was assigned to cover when, when he did this? He was covering the Little League World Series. Oh, okay. <laughs> so is he not going to make the Little League Hall of Fame either? Yeah. <laughs> Joel, yeah. here's one for you. Hmm. There's a question on Quora, which was a good question about, has anybody ever gotten into a Hall of Fame and then actually had that membership revoked? Like, that's it. That's the ultimate of cancel Ooh, culture yeah. in this country. If they actually let you in and then revoke it. And the one example that somebody cited was OJ. our man Billy Cannon. Oh, really? Not OJ. OJ has not, not been kicked yeah, out. Yeah, been kicked out. No. Billy Cannon? So Billy Cannon. LSU great. LSU running back, Heisman Trophy winner, one of the all-time greats in college football from the late 50s, was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame, Joel, Joel Anderson, a future College Football Hall of Fame voter, mm-hmm. if I have anything to say about it. So he was, <laughs> according to this person on Quora, he was elected, not yet inducted in 1983 when he was convicted of embezzlement and sentenced to prison. The College Football Hall of Fame withdrew his election. A number of years later, he was again elected and inducted. <laughs> so they did not have the courage of their convictions, or they saw the error of their ways, however you want to phrase it. I mean, so, I mean, look, again, in my lifetime, the only person that I could think of that was honored in sort of in in that sort of way that was stripped of their trophy or honor was Reggie Bush. Like, have you? Has anybody had you know something? Yeah, he got the Heisman taken. Yeah, that mm-hmm. honors their career, and at the end of it, you know, they it gets taken away from them. And I can only come up with Reggie Bush. Which just speaks to me, it just says to me that like we really don't have a standard for who belongs in these sorts. We don't have a standard for how people should be honored or shouldn't be honored. And I don't think that we should come up with one. I just think that like if you have a voting panel and however they vote is however they vote. Because again, I'm a person that'd be like, put Barry Bonds in, put Roger Clemens in. I don't mm-hmm. care. Like, that's fine. Well, like, Christina Carl, we should note, said that she didn't vote for Roger Clemens because of reports about his relationship with the Mindy country McCready. singer Mindy McCready when she was 15 yeah. years old. I mean, there. I, I agree with you, Joel, and I think that people should vote for whoever they want to vote for. And like, it calls to mind for me, like, the decision not to interview David Duke for Slow Burn to make this all about me. Yeah. And as I explained there, the reasoning there wasn't because of any like rule of journalism. It, the rules of journalism kind of point in the opposite direction. It was just like me thinking through the problem and being like, I don't want to give this guy a platform, among other reasons. And so I, I think ultimately there's no substitute for people, in this case, Hall of Fame voters, thinking about what they want to do. You can't look at some like ill-defined or vague clause and have it guide guide you. You just look at it, think about it, and do what you want to do. Like That's it. And we're also in a in a time where things are getting renamed. We are reevaluating our history. We are reevaluating Americans' connection to to racism and other blights on our historical timeline. And the baseball writers took 
Kennesaw Mountain Landis's name off of their MVP award because he was a racist. It's now voting on whether to remove a guy named J.G. Taylor Spink's name from the award that's given every year to a writer or other media figure. Um, Spinks opposed, he was the publisher of the Sporting News and opposed integration in baseball. Um, so I don't even think that this conversation is in any way unusual. This is what we should be doing as a society. We should be reconsidering the people that we've chosen to honor in the past. And if they were assholes and bigots, we can rectify that. And now it is time for After Balls. I want to go back to the World Men's Handball Championship. Joel, I don't know if you've been exposed to handball at all. Um, I saw it for the first time when you sent that clip earlier this morning. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Well, you're going to come to love this sport, which America should dominate. Um, but America did not compete in this tournament. They weren't even supposed to, like, they didn't qualify for this tournament. Mm. They were um, appointed to go because of the regional qualifications were canceled because of COVID and then all the American players got COVID, uh, got tested positive for COVID and, uh, and they didn't go. But the tournament went on, 32 teams. It was in Egypt. Denmark ended up winning on Sunday. They beat uh, Sweden 26-24 in the finals. Taiwan. They won. Denmark did. Back-to-back mm. world championships for Denmark. Very exciting. I watched a little bit and I happened the other day to tune in when uh, the goalkeeper for Sweden, a guy named Andreas Palika, did something that doesn't look humanly possible. We have a clip and then we can describe it. Oh, off the post, a brilliant recovery. Oh, what a save by Palika! Gets his foot around his ear and sends that out, although he's fallen awkwardly. Gets his foot around his ear. He totally got his foot around his ear. He does like a full leg lift. His foot is like above his head, it seems. But then in the final, Denmark's keeper, Nicholas Landin Jakobsen, not to be undone, also made a save where he got his foot way up in the air. And I wanted to ask you guys which of these saves you thought was more impressive. So there was one of them, I think it was by the Swedish dude, where he made the save only after the ball went off the post. That's the one we listened to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can hear the ball yeah. clonking off of the crossbar. I have I have less respect for that one because he just got lucky on that the first yeah. one. But the uh, the Danish dude, he didn't need uh, a, a friendly crossbar. He just got wait, the wait, 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 wait. The crossbar was the first shot, and then it rebounded to another dude. And then yeah, but if he the, made the save. but if he hadn't been saved by the crossbar, it would have just been a goal. Like he would have had the the opportunity. That's the way life works. Look, you asked yeah. for my opinion, and I gave it, and I gave it to you. I know what you want from me. <laughs> I, I'm I'm on board with Palika because I just like the way his name sounds. Palika, so. Palika. Palika. Yeah, I am too. I am too. I'm I'm with the Swedish dude. Um, I think he had a little more height on his leg, and I'm going to give him credit for that. Fine. Josh, what's your Palika? Jackie Robinson was born 102 years ago on Sunday, January 31st, 1919. We talked last week about how he inspired a young Hank Aaron who went to see Robinson play an exhibition game in Mobile, Alabama in 1948. But we should also remember how many people saw Robinson as a villain, simply because he was a Black man who advocated for Black people. One of the people who hated Robinson was Bill Keefe, the sports editor for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. In his book, Integrating the Gridiron, 
Lane Demas describes Keefe as New Orleans' most respected authority on athletics. Keefe was also extremely racist. He described the rise of boxer Joe Lewis in 1936 as the, quote, devastating march of the Black Terror. Two decades later, according to Demas, Keefe's attitude towards Black athletes had softened somewhat. When Pittsburgh's Bobby Greer became the first Black player ever in the Sugar Bowl football game, Keefe acknowledged that Greer had played, quote, a whale of a game. Later that year, 1956, the state of Louisiana passed a law that banned integrated sporting events. So no boxing matches with black and white fighters in the same ring, and no football games with black and white players on the same field. Bill Keefe didn't come out and say directly that he supported the law, but he did argue that Louisiana shouldn't be blamed for passing it. Keefe wrote that integrationists and Northerners had essentially goaded the state into it by claiming that racist incidents had taken place around that 1956 Sugar Bowl game. And he also blamed Jackie Robinson, calling him, quote, an enemy of his race and a persistently insolent and antagonistic troublemaking Negro. Keefe went on a long rant about Robinson flipping a bat into the stands, saying that if a white player had done it, he would have been suspended for the whole season. But mostly, Keefe seemed agitated by a piece that Robinson had written about integration. According to Keefe, Robinson had, quote, said he wouldn't be satisfied until hotels in the South accepted Negroes just as they admitted whites. Keefe's response to that, perhaps Southern hotel owners will get together and decide to bankrupt themselves so Robinson will be satisfied. Robinson responded by writing Keefe a letter. That letter, dated July 23rd, 1956, was published in Louisiana Weekly, a Black newspaper. Here's that letter in its entirety. Dear Mr. Keefe, I'm in receipt of a clipping in which you make reference to me in connection with the passage of the Athletic Segregation Bill in Louisiana. I am writing you, not as Jackie Robinson, but as one human being to another. I cannot help nor possibly alter what you think about me. I speak to you only as an American who happens to be an American Negro and one who is proud of that heritage. We ask for nothing special. We ask only that we be permitted to live as you live and as our nation's constitution provides. We ask only in sports that we be permitted to compete on an even basis. And if we are not worthy, then the competition shall per se eliminate us. Certainly you and the people of Louisiana should be capable of facing such competition. Myself and other Negroes in the majors stop in hotels with the rest of the club in towns like St. Louis and Cincinnati. These hotels have not gone out of business. No investment has been destroyed. The hotels are, I believe, prospering, and there has been no unpleasantness. I wish you could see this as I do, but I hold little hope. I wish you could comprehend how unfair and un-American it is for the accident of birth to make such a difference to you. I assume you're of Irish extraction. I have been told that, as recently as 50 years ago, one ads in newspapers carried the biased line, Irish and Italians need not apply in certain sections of our country. This has been forgotten, or at least overcome. You call me insolent. I'll admit I have not been subservient, but would you use the same adjective to describe a white ball player? say, Ted Williams, who is, more often than I, involved in controversial matters? Am I insolent? 
Or am I merely insolent for a Negro who has courage enough to speak against injustices such as yours and people like you? I am deeply regretful that Louisiana has taken this step backward because your sports fans, and I believe there are many fine persons among them, will be deprived of top attractions because of it. Not for the Negro in Louisiana who will, because of your law, be deprived of the right of free and equal competition, but because of the damage it does to our country. I am happy for you that you were born white. It would have been extremely difficult for you had it been otherwise. Sincerely yours, Jackie Robinson. I first learned about this letter when Grand Valley State history professor Lou Moore shared those immortal last two sentences on Twitter a few months ago. Two years after Robinson wrote those lines, a federal court found that the Louisiana segregation law was unconstitutional on its face. The U.S. Supreme Court would agree, and as of 1959, segregated athletic competitions were over in the state, at least officially, though the reality was a lot more messy than that. As for Bill Keefe, he said in a later column that two editors from the Black newspaper, Louisiana Weekly, had asked what he thought about Robinson's response. I told them it was a very nice letter, Keefe wrote on August 10th, 1956. But since it had not changed my opinion in the least, I saw no reason to answer it. Two weeks after that, another Black paper, the Pittsburgh Courier, published excerpts of a letter that Keefe had reportedly written to an anonymous Louisiana pastor. I haven't seen reference to this letter um, in any other publication. I haven't seen any response that Keefe had to the Pittsburgh Courier publishing it. But according to the Courier, in that letter, Keefe made his true feelings known, writing that the divine creator had segregated blacks and whites, and saying that black people had thick skulls and ape-like arms. Keefe would remain the Times-Picayune sports editor until he retired in 1963, after 54 years on the job. He died in 1967. In 1982, he was one of four men honored with the Louisiana Sports Writers Association's first-ever Distinguished Service Awards. Jackie Robinson's letter to Bill Keefe is included in the book First Class Citizenship, The Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson, edited by Michael G. Long. That book includes correspondence with Richard Nixon, JFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and one New Orleans sports editor who Jackie Robinson was happy was born white. Joel Anderson, the look on your face at those last two uh, sentences on the Zoom, you were, uh, you seemed blown away by that, by what Robinson wrote. Well, it's just a, um, it's another way of saying something that, you know, my mother used to say uh, coming up uh, when I was growing up. She was like, if they'd had to bend me, they wouldn't have made it. And that's, you know, I guess that maybe this this was a, (laughs) this was, uh, you know, a line that uh, made its way around the South or whatever. But um, yeah, man, that's, it kind of blew me away. And he's absolutely right. And just a week after we talked about Hank Aaron um, and what he had to deal with, and you just wonder, as good as Jackie Robinson was, like how much greater he could have been if he had not had to take on all this other shit too. Great writer. I had not really spent much time with Robinson's writing, but that was uh, extremely powerful stuff. Yeah. Hall of Famer, by the way. <laughs> I'm talking about your boy, Bill Keith, Keith uh, or whatever, Keith. The power in that letter, I mean, it reminded me a little bit to bring back to my after ball last week about the Tuggerson brothers, just the, saying that, as, as Robinson does in this letter, 
that we ask for nothing special just brought me back to these two less famous baseball players, not famous baseball players, saying all we want is an opportunity to prove our ability as baseball players. Just these simple, simple declarations of request for respect and the ability to do what they want to do. Right on. All right. Well, we have another afterball for you guys this week, and it's a very special one from a very special uh, member of our crew, Melissa Kaplan. Melissa, it's our last show with us this week, and we're going to miss them a lot, um, and we wanted you to hear from them. So, Melissa, it is your chance now. Stefan, actually, you got to tell you got to tell Melissa because I don't remember the Swedish guy's name. <laughs> Melissa, what is your palika? So my palika is the Philly fanatic. As someone who, like Joel, takes a lot of pride in their hometown, mm-hmm. there was one presence in Philly sports that always confounded me. The Fanatic. A green, fuzzy, 300-pound Muppet. He's beloved by most Phillies fans, but not all. I wasn't a fan of The Fanatic as a kid in the late 80s and early 90s, partly because I didn't know what he was supposed to be. According to Team PR, he's a flightless, bipedal bird from the Galapagos, which is not all that close to Philadelphia. I'll admit I may have also been projecting some grief onto the Fanatic, because those were some pretty bad years for the team, not counting when we made it to the World Series in 1993. Had I been a little bit older, I might have attended games with the original Phillies mascots, Philadelphia Phil and Phyllis. They were wide-eyed, 15-foot fiberglass animatronic twins in colonial jackets, the intensely creepy brain children of the franchise's director of innovation, Bill Giles, who came to the Phillies from the Astros in 1970. Shout out to Houston. Giles had a whole big plan for the twins with electronics and special effects, but they fell flat in practice. Although Phyllis did have a cannon, which was pretty cool. If you want to visit them today, you can. They're at an amusement park called Storybook Land in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. The twins didn't work the field alone. They had the support of the Hot Pants Patrol, a group of young women in red jumpsuits, white go-go boots, and yes, hot pants. They debuted on April 10th, 1971, Veteran Stadium's opening game. 140 young women, or fillies as they were called, recruited from 432 applicants who'd been advised to wear your shortest skirt and tightest blouse. This classically lowest bar marketing campaign outlived the twins by four years, with the Hot Pants Patrol retiring in 1982. So thankfully, I never had to sit through any of that. The Fanatic was born in 1978, when Bill Giles called up the firm Harrison Erickson, a group connected to Muppet maker Jim Henson. Giles said he wanted something big, green, fuzzy, and undefined. This character was going to prowl around at Veterans Stadium, proud home of a jail built to house unruly Eagles fans. So this oddball creature needed to be strategically disarming. The fanatic snout is akin to a megaphone, and it's got a long, stick-outable tongue. It also has an ATV, shoots hot dogs into the stands, jiggles its belly, and honors the spirit of Philadelphians and expats by taunting opposing teams. The fanatic, portrayed by David Raymond, was an instant hit. A newspaper story published just a few weeks after its debut said it was beloved by thousands and thousands of fans. 
It also said that Phillies fans didn't call it the fanatic. They called the creature simply the bird. Raymond was just a college-aged intern when he first stepped into the bird's big sneakers, far from a seasoned performer. He was nervous, and on that first day, he asked Giles, what do I do? Giles thought about it and said, have fun, and hastily added as Raymond walked out the door, G-rated fun. Raymond used his experience talking with his deaf mother to communicate with the audience through wild gesticulation, entertaining the crowd, and shaping the fanatic's story. I can't stay annoyed at the fanatic, knowing there was so much heart inside that suit, and that it was such a clear improvement from the 70s, a time when Veteran Stadium ran amok with animatronic nightmare children and chauvinism. I'm sorry I doubted you, Philly fanatic. I'm glad you didn't have a creepy twin. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, let's do our celebratory clap. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. That was great, Melissa. I did not know about Phil and Phyllis. Did you know about the Hot Pants Patrol? Because I didn't know about that either. <laughs> the Hot <laughs> Pants <laughs> Patrol, I remember. You did. <laughs> you <too>? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Phil and Phyllis, I didn't know about. I think there's a good reason. Just a quick Google search. They are just the scariest things. Yeah, they are nightmare fuel. Yeah, very much so. I I wouldn't even venture to Egg Harbor Township to see them. And I, I love goofy road trips, but no. <laughs> no, thanks. All right. I was going to suggest a uh, hang up road trip to New Jersey, but I guess that's <laughs> off. Melissa, we've loved having you on the show so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Not behind the scenes for us, but behind the scenes for for the listeners. And we'll miss having you in our in our Zoom every week and wish you nothing but the best. Thanks, Josh. I'll miss you guys too. And it's been great being number one listener every week and getting to make the show sound awesome. All of which you have done. And, you know, not just in the Zoom, but pre-pandemic in the studio. It's been a total pleasure having you shepherd the show week after week. Melissa, thank you so much for all of your work. Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, I'm the new person here. I don't have the history, right? But uh, Melissa, you've just been incredibly generous and diligent and kind and sweet and all that stuff. And you've made me in particular sound so much better than I actually am. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and and people don't know this. It's because of Melissa, Melissa's work that I'm actually moving. I'm moving to a house that has another room because just Melissa is so diligent about our sound quality. And maybe you all just take it for granted if you listen to the show, but like that is a big part of what Melissa does and making this a, a great show. And so, and I, the, la- the last piece of this is that working with you on The Last Last Dance is one of the, the best professional experiences I've ever had. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And I got glad I got to do it with you and just wish you the best uh, going forward. And I know you're going to do great, you know, uh, whatever whatever comes up next. So. Oh my gosh, Joel, thank you. It was wonderful working on that with you. And I'm glad that you don't have to record under a blanket anymore. Yes. I know Janae is <laughs> Me too. happy about that too. Good luck with the move. And I loved working with you as well. Do you guys mind if I do a quick shout out to my Twitter? Yeah, no. Of course, please. I'm on Twitter at MS Culprit. So find me, say hi. That is our show for today. Our producer, number one in our hearts, Melissa Kaplan at MS Culprit. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and to review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. 
You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.